The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. It's 2014, Durham, North Carolina. Randy Griffin is at her desk studying when her phone dings with an email. Dear Randy Griffin, my name is Jungmin Kim at Korea Hockey Federation. I am responsible for recruiting Korean descent players from North America. You the English wasn't great, and Randy definitely didn't know the sender. I've got some information about you. I'm sure you are a great player. Your stats and But more than that, Randy wasn't a hockey player anymore. She was busy working on her PhD in evolutionary anthropology. We provide flight ticket, round trip, and accommodation. Could you give me a reply? And yet, South Korea was writing to her about a spot on their national team. The whole thing seemed just unbelievable. And it wasn't just because Randy had retired from hockey years ago. It was also that she didn't totally identify as Korean anyway. She grew up in the U.S. She's half Korean and half white, and she'd never even been to Korea. Kind of like, look at this. I got this like weird, scammy email. Imagine you had a dream that you had worked for your entire life. And then at some point, you realize it's just not going to happen. So you give it up. Decide to pursue something else. And then, out of the blue, someone comes and offers you a chance at that original dream. But there's a catch. You have to put your real life on pause for a while and move somewhere where you haven't been and you don't speak the language. You have to feel like an outsider for years. Would you do all that for a dream you tried to forget about? I'm Kareem Maddox, and this is The Greatness. I'm a professional basketball player, and a few years ago, I had to make a choice that was just like this. Instead of hockey, it was basketball, and instead of South Korea, it was Poland, which is a place I had no ties to. I walked away from my friends, my family, my career at the time, for the chance to pursue this basketball dream. On that day in 2014, Randy Griffin had no idea how much she would have to sacrifice to go to the Olympics, but she was about to find out. As a kid, Randy was always on the ice. She was a figure skater first, but she took up ice hockey after seeing a group of boys playing at the rec rink. She was competitive, and she loved the strategy of hockey. Because there weren't many girls playing, she skated with the boys, and honestly, she was better than them for a while. After they hit puberty, I had no hope of being the fastest. So they caught up and surpassed me in skating abilities really quickly. And then I had to transition my style so that it was primarily having good hands and being able to read the ice really well and using strategies other than beating people with speed. To compete as a teenager, she had to play smarter. So I would set up these obstacle courses in my garage and I would use a golf ball and I would just drill myself until 
Within a few years, I was actually known primarily as being someone who had great hands um, versus being a great skater. Randy played so well that she got recruited by Harvard. It's one of the top college hockey programs in the US. And she started to let herself dream about that next level, a spot on the US Olympic hockey team. My coach also was very involved in the national team program and like she picked people. So yeah, we, we also had Olympians on the team that I could compare myself to directly. At Harvard, Randy could see that great hands and fast skating were only gonna get her so far. No matter how hard I worked, I felt like they had an edge that I I didn't know if I was actually capable of of attaining that. So Randy assumed that college hockey was as far as she'd get. The U.S. is in the upper echelon of Olympic hockey programs. The players are big, strong, and fast, and they're technically excellent. So when Randy graduated, she hung up her skates. Until four years later, when she got that email from the Korean Ice Hockey Association or Kiha. It turns out that wasn't a scam. South Korea was set to host the 2018 Winter Games. And though South Korea is sometimes overshadowed by its neighbor, North Korea, these games would be a chance for the country to show what it could do. And at the center of the Winter Olympics is ice hockey, the marquee sport. And for South Korea, that presented one big problem. Hockey is not a very popular sport in South Korea. Seth Berkman wrote a book about the Korean women's hockey team called A Team of Their Own. South Korea's teams would essentially have an automatic bid to play at the Olympics. But could they win? South Korea was at the very bottom rung. They were playing countries like Kazakhstan, um, Thailand, England, um, and even then South Korea was not performing well against these teams. If South Korea didn't want to get embarrassed on home soil, they needed to get better at hockey. So four years before the games, Kiha made a decision. They needed to bring in import players. Import players are pretty common in the sports world. For a few years after college, I played professional basketball in Europe. And there, I was considered an import. It was a great way for me to keep playing, to travel the world and to make some money. And for the Olympics, Athletes only need to be a citizen of the country they're competing for. It's easy enough to give an athlete a passport in return for playing on a national team. So often, countries will ask athletes with no heritage to compete for them. But for other countries, it's important that the athlete wearing the jersey has some ties to the motherland. And Korea wanted its import players to actually be Korean in some way. Going through the rosters of college teams in Canada and the U.S. that had hockey programs and looking at the lists of names and picking out what names sounded Korean, might have been Korean. By the time Kiha found Randy, though, she was out of shape. It had been four years since she played college hockey, since she'd trained for hours a day. And the idea of all the time and work it would take Randy to get herself back to peak performance, that was overwhelming. And even if she could get back into shape, there was another big question looming. Randy wasn't sure she felt Korean enough to play for the country. I felt like being Korean was largely something that I had to say in response to the question, where are you really from? It was like other people 
white people telling me like, you're something else. What are you? And me saying, uh, Korean. But at the same time, I was always very aware, like I am not Korean, Korean. What, what is, what is Korean, Korean mean to you? So growing up, I thought it was just speaking Korean fluently, like truly fluently being able to pick up all the nuances of the language and, and also appearances matter too. Like to a person who has grown up seeing Korean faces, I look white. My white features stand out. And so I would have thought, you know, being fluent in Korean and being able to walk into a Korean restaurant and having people immediately look at me and think, oh, Korean, and speak to me in Korean rather than speaking to me in English. Joining the team would mean two and a half years of living in a country Randy had never visited and playing with teammates who she could barely talk to, whose language she didn't speak. She talked it over with her parents and her grandparents. For my grandparents, you know, they, they saw my presence on that team as completely legitimate. And I think hearing that particularly my grandparents were very positive about it and thought it would be a great thing for me to just live in Korea and spend time there. I think for them it was, oh, she might actually connect with this place and this culture that she's been kind of disconnected from. And I think also there was just a piece of the pride that would come with that for them because they're still very embedded in the Korean American community. And I think being able to say like, oh, my granddaughter <laughs> doing this and that, um, you know, I think for them was just a pride point. That summer, Randy committed. She was done with the classes she needed for her PhD and could keep working on her dissertation from Korea. So she packed her skates and her books and moved to Seoul. It's about a 15 hour flight from North Carolina to Korea. Randy used the flight over to try to learn to read and write the Korean alphabet. Her new home was the Taerung National Training Center in the suburbs of Seoul. It was built in the 1960s, and you can tell. It's a beige and green compound that looks more like a high school or a rec center than the site of Olympic-level training. There are dorms as well as sports facilities. So Randy and the other imports would live there and train there. Randy shared a room with another American teammate, Grace Lee. She was 16, about 10 years younger than Randy. When I first met her, she was like, what's your Instagram? And I was like, oh, I don't have one. And she looked at me like I had five heads and she was like, how do you interact with people? And I was like, wow, I'm officially old lady. And when they got to the rink, Randy got her first chance to see how her new teammates played. There was like a lot of raw talent, particularly a lot of speed. Um, but I could tell there was a lack of strategy or like, everyone would like try to get the puck and then just like skate it up the ice and like do it all themselves. And it wasn't because they were like selfish players. It was because I think they hadn't had coaching and they weren't used to thinking about using your teammates as assets. On the ice, the challenge was clear. The team didn't play like a team at all. They had zero chemistry. It was like her Korean teammates expected the imports to just make magic happen. So like when I would get the puck, the other team would be chasing me and my teammates would just be like watching, like, oh, what's she gonna do? And I'm like, well, I, I need you to like get open. I need you to like do something. 
One thing I've learned from basketball is that the power of a star player only goes so far. In a team sport, having the best player definitely helps, but chemistry, that's what wins games. And chemistry is one of those you know it when you see it things. When I've got good chemistry with my team, I don't have to do a lot of thinking. I don't have to worry about what my teammates are gonna do next or where they're gonna be on the court. I just kind of know instinctively. When your teammates feel like an extension of yourself, that's chemistry. When you have chemistry with your line mates, there's this sense of calm and confidence where when you're in that situation, you're like, yep, I know where she's gonna be. Like, I don't even, I don't need to see her. I don't need to hear her. I know she reads the situation. She sees my body position and the situation I'm in. She knows what I wanna do with the puck and I know she's gonna be there. Without chemistry, you might as well be playing alone. When you don't have chemistry with your line mates, that those moments feel really stressful. You feel panicked almost. And that's what those early days on the Korean team were like for Randy. You don't need to be friends with people or even share a language to build chemistry. You just need time. Playing together, learning who your teammates are on and off the ice. But Randy and her teammates didn't even speak the same language. And there were other big cultural differences too. So <laughs> there is like, I think this cultural acceptance in the hockey world that like hockey players stink. Everybody's got a bag of rancid gear and the locker rooms are absolutely rancid. And I think part of it is just that you, you get super sweaty and then you put all this stuff into a bag and you zip it up and then it sits somewhere for a while. And so it really is just an incubator for nasty bacteria and I think because it's just like everyone stinks, you stop feeling self-conscious about it. But the Koreans didn't think it was just a given that hockey players had to smell bad. And they found a way to let the American players know. So it started with some of the girls got me a, a little passive aggressive present. It was like air freshener and spray for my gear. And I had already noticed like they all smelled like really good. Everyone smelled like flowers. They sanitized their gear after every time they went out and they had special things that they would like put into their skates and into their gloves to make sure that smelled nice. And I later found out when they got a little bit more comfortable with me that they were just appalled at how terrible we smelled. And the cultural differences went deeper than body odor. There is a, a term unni in Korean, which is the term for a, a big sister, but it's like a rule that if there is a female who is older than you, even if it's just a few months, because this age hierarchy is really important, she's unni. Even though I was second oldest on the team, I was not unni. Like they're not calling me unni, which like if I was Korean would be really disrespectful. I was the only half Korean on the team. Um, so yeah, I think it just was a question for me, like, you know, how, how do I fit in? What does this mean? Um, but I, I notice, you know, I notice that I'm the only older player that's not, not getting that treatment. But for all of their differences over months of training, they had learned to work as a team and they started playing some games against other countries. In the spring of 2017, nearly two years after Randy moved to Seoul, the team had a big game against a surprising opponent, North Korea. The Koreas were one country before 1945. At the end of World War II, they were divided, part of a compromise between the Soviet Union and the US. They were split down the 38th parallel, 
by two American military officers who had never even been to Korea. The South became a democratic nation aligned with the U.S., and the North became a dictatorship led by Kim Il-sung, and later his son, Kim Jong-il, and then his grandson, Kim Jong-un. The border became impenetrable, and the two Koreas grew apart. Families were divided by the border, and still are. And there are a ton of people, even today, who think that the countries should reunite. So this game between the North and the South was a really big deal. It happened at the Gangneung Hockey Center in South Korea. It was a huge arena packed with people, and Seth Berkman says that for a lot of people in the stands, it was way more than just a hockey game. It was, it was very much a big media spectacle. A lot of spectators had flags or sweatshirts with images of a light blue Korean peninsula. It's a pro-unification symbol. And so you had these um, unification groups at the games who would hold up banners and do chants. It was less than a year before the Olympics, and it still wasn't clear if North Korea would participate in the games. Politically, things were getting tense between the U.S. and North Korea, and between the North and the South. Days before the match, the North Korean pushed things even further when they tested a ballistic missile, all of which made this hockey game, this temporary show of unity, even more powerful. It was one of the biggest crowds I've ever played against. The pro-unification spectators clapped thundersticks and chanted, we are one. On the ice, all the work from Randy's team was paying off. A few years earlier, North Korea had been the stronger hockey team, but that was before the imports. Just the amount of training we were doing, like we legitimately had improved so much that they couldn't really compete. The North Koreans were outmatched all the way down to their equipment. They had these old wooden sticks that didn't let them slap pucks as hard or as fast as the South Koreans could. And the game wasn't even close. The South beat the North 3-0. to zero. And for South Korea, it was a good win. A sign of progress and a testament to the chemistry they'd built. But they still had work to do. After all, it wasn't like they had just beaten Russia or Canada or one of the other teams that dominate Olympic hockey. And they knew that a medal at the Games was going to be a long shot. The Korean team would probably be lucky to make it past their preliminary Olympic Games. Now, our, our coach had this thing where we always had to say, we're going for gold. And, you know, as the players, we'd kind of be like, yeah, yeah, going for gold. But like, really, it was like, no, no, no. But one of those games is going to be Japan. And Japan felt like they were in reach. Japan's players were similar to the South Koreans in size and strength. That means they were smaller than the players on those powerhouse teams. The South Koreans were a really small team. They emphasized speed as one of their advantages, and Japan was, their roster was comprised the same way. And so Japan was always looked at as the most winnable game, but it was also the game they wanted to win the most because of the history of Korea and Japan. Japan colonized Korea from 1910 through 1945. It's a painful history for a lot of Koreans. Randy's grandfather told her about it. He would definitely go into a reminiscing mode about how he was forced to have a, a Japanese name and, you know, these kinds of stories. And so for us, that was our goal. Our goal was beat Japan, and that would be probably highlight of the Olympics 
for Koreans if that happens. And that would put our team on the map. It would inspire so many little girls to play our sport. And we were really serious about it. It was a goal that could really unite the team. And it felt realistic. After two years of training together, everyone had found their role. They had a level of comfort with each other, even off the ice. The other players still didn't call Randy Unni, which didn't offend her. She was still the only mixed player, but the Korean players expected her teammate, Grace Lee, to call them Unni, which Grace, being a stubborn American teenager, didn't feel like doing. She just like wouldn't partake in it and they hated it and they would correct her. Like if she called, you know, hey, Sujin, Sujin would be like, Sujin Unni. And then one day Grace like walked in the room and like said like, hey, Randy. And I was like, Randy Unni. And the Korean players like died laughing. They thought this was the funniest thing. And they kept like repeating this joke. And then it became like a thing that we could joke about where like, I am acknowledging that like, this is a cultural difference. I am not Unni and that's why this is funny. And then players started kind of a little bit tongue in cheek calling me Randy Unni. And I would say, no, 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 I, I'm not Unni. And, you know, gave me the chance to, to say, no, I, I understand, right? I, I'm, I'm Korean enough to say that this is my food. I'm Korean enough to wear this jersey. And they all agree on that. But I'm not Unni. And that's okay. They started counting down the days until the opening ceremony. Then, they got a surprise none of them saw coming. I found out about it in a New York Times notification on my phone. Hi, my name's Ben Lewis, host of the new series Art Bust, Scandalous Stories of the Art World. I'll explore some of the most shocking art crimes and biggest scandals. I know it's a cliché, but it's a cliché because it's true. There's no honor among thieves. I would like the European and Western countries, including the United States, to recognize their crimes. It's about murder in the name of art. Tune in to Art Bust, Scandalous Stories of the Art World, an Antica and USG audio production. Available wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. 
The news breaks while the team is on a flight to Korea from the U.S. When they get off the plane, they turn on their phones and find a flood of text messages and emails. South Korea's women's hockey team will unite with North Korea's team for the Olympic Games. When the team walks through the sliding glass doors at the airport, they're greeted by a throng of reporters. What do you think about blah, blah, blah? None of us knew that this was going to happen. When South Korea hosted the Olympics back in 1988, the North hijacked a plane and set off a bomb on board. And relations with the North were starting to get tense in the lead up to the 2018 games. South Korea's president, Moon Jae-in, wanted to make sure things went smoothly. His parents were from North Korea, you know. They, they had to flee North Korea because of the effects of the war. So for him and a lot of people in South Korea, the, the, the resonance with North Korea of having familial ties there and it being considered, you know, the place that we're from is very strong. Maybe Kim Jong-un saw how the escalating tensions with the U.S. were affecting his people. Maybe he thought the country could use a bit of goodwill. So to be able to extend an olive branch and show that you are more willing to participate in just basic dialogue or tone down the rhetoric between the two sides, there's a definite advantage to doing something like that. A united team seemed like a win for everyone involved, except the hockey players. We felt sort of indignant, like, no, you can't just do that to us. Like, we're a team. We've got a thing here. Randy had been training with the team for more than two years. And suddenly, they had less than a month to incorporate 12 new players. They also never discussed doing it to the men's team. And it very much felt like this is just how they don't take us seriously. And we want to be taken seriously. Like, we want to do well in the games. We want to surprise people and show them that, you know, we have a real hockey team here in Korea. One South Korean government official actually said they chose to unify the women's hockey team because no one expected them to win anyway. It was an insult to everything they had worked towards for the past couple of years because Randy and her teammates knew better than anyone that uniting a team is not as simple as throwing players together on the ice. It was a, a couple weeks before the Olympics started when they arrived in our training center and they arrived with no hockey equipment, too. And to make room for the new arrivals from the north, players from the original team were going to get bumped. So there was also this immediate awareness, like, okay, people are getting cut. Like, people that, like, we thought this was our team. We're ready to go. And it's it's not for anything that's going to benefit the team. It's It's just this political thing. The players from the North arrived on January 25th, just two weeks before the opening ceremony. At nine in the morning, a bus full of North Korean players pulled up to the Jincheon Training Center. There were news vans and helicopters everywhere. Everyone wanted a shot of the first moments of a historic unification. Inside the training center, Randy took in the strange position her team was in. So we had all gathered in the locker room and it felt like surreal and we were actually kind of goofy and like, like, oh, who, who, you take the flowers, you do, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, and then when we actually met them, you know, people definitely like understood, okay, we, we've got our game faces on here and this is like a significant moment 
to a lot of people, certainly to the media. And we have a, a duty that we have agreed to, to fulfill. We've you know been briefed at least a little bit on this and understand that this is about something bigger than us. And so our, our most mature players took the flowers and they all got off a bus and we bowed, gave them flowers, and then took some pictures. The athletes didn't speak to each other. They posed in a picture like kids in elementary school. They shouted, we are one for the cameras. It was a total photo op. And the picture made its way onto homepages around the world. And it didn't get much better when they started practicing together. This is obviously going to be artificial and there's no way that you can form real bonds. There was a lot of, I think, media portraying the social bonds on the team as being more than they were. I, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. Like I, I would be at the, the opening ceremonies taking like selfies with North Koreans and like posing like this is someone I really know. I don't really know her. Like we're just playing a role right now. And, and that's the reality of like how disconnected things were is you can find these pictures of of me posing for selfies with people who I didn't know their name. (laughs) Another obvious difference between the North and South Korean players was how they treated Randy. They called me Unni from the beginning because they recognized that I was older. Before the team had united with the North, the fact that her teammates didn't call her Unni was evidence of how Randy was different. But when her Northern teammates did call her Unni, it just felt wrong. They didn't actually know her or care to take a moment to think about whether that term made sense for Randy. Why would they? They were only playing together for a few weeks. It felt totally superficial, right? It was like, no, you're just like following a rule. You you know I'm not really Korean, but you just don't know what else to do. And I felt like what I was able to find with the South Korean players was an authentic level of like, you know, We understand what you are, and it's okay, and you're part of the team. The game against Japan was scheduled for Valentine's Day 2018. The unified Korean team had already lost to Sweden and Switzerland. Inside the locker room at the Kwangdong Hockey Center, morale was low. On game day, people got a little extra excited about that game, and, you know, there were some passionate locker room speeches that happened, there still was this, like, I felt an exhaustion on the team. And there was a feeling a little bit of like, let's just get through this. We have to just get through it. And that's not really what you want to feel, like going into the biggest game that you've been preparing for, but it was real. But the crowd in the stadium was excited. Thousands of people lined up to get into the game. General Korean audiences, not even hockey fans, wanted to see that game, bought tickets, watch it on TV because it was a sold out crowd and you had 90% of the people there are Koreans with this animosity towards Japan, rooting for Korea. Everyone wanted to believe that a bunch of girls, North Koreans, South Koreans, imports, could unite around a shared history and a common love of hockey. Everyone on the team knew the hopes and expectations on their shoulders. Even the Northern players understood the symbolism of beating Japan. After all, 
Korea had been a unified nation during the colonization. At game time, the players who made the cut skated out on the ice. Because they were a unified team, neither of the nation's anthems played. Instead, they heard Arirang, a Korean folk song that has significance on both sides of the border. Then the match starts. And immediately, things are not great. Japan wins the faceoff and quickly puts Korea on the defensive. Within a couple of minutes, Japan scores a goal. Then the coaches put Randy in. Within minutes, she committed an illegal hit and was put in the penalty box for two minutes. Three minutes later, Japan scored again while Team Korea was one player short. Korea was losing 0-2, and the game had barely even started. Because the two Koreas have been divided for so long, North and South Koreans speak different dialects. They even had different words for the same hockey terms, like pass. The South Korean players were able to at least communicate with the Northern players. But players who didn't speak Korean at all, like Randy, struggled to make connections. And that played out on the ice. It wasn't even that the North Korean players were bad. Randy could see that the North Koreans, with their new, better equipment, were actually pretty decent players. They were disciplined, and they kept the puck moving. But the combined team had no chemistry. And there was a moment on a power play where I crashed face first into one of them. I have no idea what she was doing, but like we just didn't have communication. So with thousands of people in the stands, at the Olympics, Randy and her teammates looked like they don't even know how to play. That was really embarrassing. Like, I felt embarrassed. I don't want people to think this is our team. Every time Korea drove the puck into Japan's zone, the crowd picked up. You could hear how everyone was pulling for them. But just as quickly, Japan would take the puck back. I can't believe this is how this is going down. You know, like, we're so much better than this. At the start of the second period, Korea and Japan skated back onto the freshly zamboni ice. Korea was down 0-2, to two, but they weren't ready to give up yet. Korea won the faceoff and took possession of the puck. Another import, Caroline Park, drove the puck out of Korea's zone and threw it hard against the sides of the rink. It bounced and slid up to Randy, who was locked up with a Japanese defender. She managed to get free enough to hit the puck towards the Japanese goal. It wasn't a clean shot, but it slid right through the Japanese goalie's legs. It erupted. It was really loud and, you know, the cheering, unlike any, any moment before in one of Korea's games. It was the first goal scored by Korea in the Olympics ever. Randy's teammates jumped onto her as the crowd cheered. Now the score was 2-1. to one. It was something you could feel, like, in the arena that the momentum had switched and all of a sudden after that for the next 10 minutes or so, Korea was the better team. Oh my God, I think we're back in this. Like, we need the next one. Korea had the momentum now, and everyone in the arena knew it. Spectators wiped away tears as they cheered for the home team. And suddenly, it was like Team Korea remembered what they were there to do. The momentum carried into the third period. The crowd was with Korea, locked in on every pass, every change of possession. Korea was playing better than they had the entire Olympics, and they were in a fight to get that game-tying goal. 
being down by one feels like things are really within reach. And we had a 15 minute period after that goal where we were dominating the game legitimately. And you could tell the Japanese players were like, holy shit, like what is going on here? We weren't expecting this. Then a couple things happened. First, Randy checked the Japanese player and had to go to the penalty box for two minutes while Japan had a power play. Then Japan scored their third goal. Three one is a much steeper mountain to climb than two to one. And you know, from that point, it, you know, we didn't really get back in it. I would say. In the final minutes of the third period, Japan scored one more goal. It was over. Korea lost to Japan four to one. Of the eight women's ice hockey teams at the Olympics, Korea came in last place. We had some moments where I think, at least as a team, we knew we we felt like we had proven something, at least to ourselves. What was it like to score an Olympic goal? It, it was a garbage goal. It was not like an ESPN highlight kind of goal. It was like, like, I guess I, I did a good thing by like getting the shot off, but it was a not a great shot and, you know, it was a little bit fluky. So yeah, it wasn't like, I felt like, oh yeah, I'm like, you know, Alex Ovechkin or something like, it's like, okay, I happen to be the last one to touch the puck. The day after the closing ceremony, it was time for the Northern players to say goodbye. After all they'd been through, some of the South Korean players were sad to see the Northerners go. Seth was there for it. It was early in the morning in the Olympic Village and Everyone there is just crying, you know, in full tears, saying goodbye because they know they're not going to see those people ever again. They were together for 10, 12 hours a day. You're bound to form bonds with them. And then taking the historical context into everything and, you know, developing genuine relationships with people. In the years since, many of the imports have quit playing hockey entirely. I'm kind of sad in a way because they were saying things like, oh, what's going to happen after if we're just going to get tossed away to the side and no one will remember us? And in a way, that's kind of happened. The Korean team was united under this optimistic idea that Koreans from all over the world, immigrants, adoptees, native-born North and South Koreans, could come together despite all of their differences and become a team based on this common bond they shared, their Koreanness. But each of the players on that team was so much more than just Korean. They were former actors and rap fans and gamers, PhD students. They were North Korean women who had never seen the outside world. And because they didn't have the time to get into those nuances, to get to know each other, to really bridge the differences between them, their team never stood a chance. In the hope that they could bring peace to the peninsula through their common love of hockey, that didn't stand a chance either. Politically, nothing long-lasting came out of the renewed relations. It made for a lot of good photo opportunities, but no real tangible kind of change. Randy doesn't play hockey anymore. She doesn't even mention the Olympics on her personal website. What do you think you gained from the experience? 
I would say it, it, it forced me to like confront like the extent to which I am or am not Korean in, in a way that like I always sort of felt like I had never really confronted that. Something interesting which happened in my view was I felt like the Korean players over time adopted a, a sort of like flexible conception of like being Korean and I did as well. Like I think I used to <laughs> I used to just say I'm Korean, but now I wouldn't be so cavalier about claiming Koreanness, even though I am a citizen and I like literally wore the jersey. I'm sort of like, no, it's it's like complicated. This episode was produced by Alex Sujong Laughlin, with production support from Mitchell Johnson, Jess Shane, and Lacey Roberts. Our executive editor is Sarah Nix, executive producing by me, Kareem Maddox, along with Greta Cohn, Josh Block, and Jessica Grimshaw. Sound design by Alex Overington. Jasmine Flott is our music supervisor. And thanks to Seth Berkman and his book, A Team of Their Own, How an International Sisterhood Made Olympic History. 